another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Good to see you again. And and I'm going to I'm going to see you again, actually, Andy, very soon. I'm going to come to your house. Yes, we're gonna. You're going to give a talk. I'm going to be a witness, like I've never heard you speak before. <laughs> and. Uh, no, but it'll, it'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it. You're going to, uh, Professor Moore speaks all over the country. I don't follow him all over the country, but um, but since he's going to be speaking in Philadelphia, which is in my neck of the woods, I'm going to be attending. This is at the Museum of the American Revolution. American Revolution. But of course, by the time we upload this episode, it will be in the proverbial rearview mirror. Yes. Um, are they going to tape it? Is it going to be? Hope so. Uh, Available for so if if there's if we have access to it we'll post a link. Um, okay, now we're taping this uh, ahead of time because I'm going on a trip. Um, but by and by the time you hear this, the Supreme Court will already be in session. It uh, sits the first Monday in October, and people are talking about what's going to go on this year. And we're not doing uh, in this episode a preview of all the big cases. But it is interesting, as the, as the court is about to sit, that there are a variety of items in the news. And, you know, although maybe not all these things will be heard this year at the court, um, nevertheless, they're, they're relevant to the fact that the court is about to sit. And I think it's, you know, as we were talking about the McKeel, I think one, th- one thing that we'll uh, become aware of as we go through this episode is how they became interestingly related to each other. Yes. Things that seemed, you know, disparate at first um, wound up not so much. But before we get started, I just want to remind our audience about uh, the big announcement that we made last week, which is our partnership with the New Jersey State Bar Association. So this um, is very important for listeners who are judges and attorneys, not just in New Jersey, but really if you're admitted to practice anywhere in the United States, uh, just about the CLE reciprocity rules will allow you to get continuing legal education credits uh, just for listening to the podcast. 1.2 New Jersey general credits um, are available for listening to the podcast. And the way that you do it, just to remind you, if you didn't hear last week's or even if you did, um, you go to this website, podcast dot njsba that's new jersey state bar association podcast dot njsba.com very simple and then you just follow the directions that apply to your particular uh state whether you're in new jersey or elsewhere and then you enter a little bit of information like your name maybe your license number something like that and you pay a processing fee and then you'll get a certificate of attendance within two weeks so um, we're going to read a code um, partway through this episode, and that code you'll need that code in order to redeem it. So again, judges and attorneys admitted pretty much anywhere in the United States, you could take advantage of this. And we're very grateful to the New Jersey State Bar Association for this partnership. It reminds us <laughs> that we uh, that we're we need to make sure that we're uh, providing an educational service. Right. Um, I think we do. Right. Um, but it's something we always have in our mind. Okay. So let's talk about, let's give a little overview of, of a few of the things that we're going to talk about today. And I, I guess the easiest way is to look at news items. 
So I saw a news item today that the Students for Fair Admissions, the people that were involved in the Harvard and North Carolina case cases about affirmative action, have now filed suit against the United States uh, Military Academy, West Point. And I, I haven't uh, you know, read the suit or anything, but I think the gist of it is basically similar complaints to the other cases that that it's uh, this is race conscious admissions affirmative action of a sort or of, as a kid would say of a of a certain sort and uh and uh, no go they say okay we'll talk about that another thing we're going to talk about is the kind of aftermath of the case of Allen versus Milligan this is a case we haven't really gone over as a voting rights case that was decided in the last uh, Supreme Court term. Alabama you know, was found to have an illegal, either I guess you could call it gerrymandering or legislative districting, did not provide for the possibility for minorities to be represented in a fair way, the court said. Uh, and the basis of that decision lied, lay in Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Okay, so that... that uh, that was decided, and the Alabama state legislature was directed to have at least two districts that provided for the possibility of a minority election. Two out of seven. And Right, two out of seven. And instead they came back with a plan that, that allowed for one out of seven, which is what they had before, uh, which is what they were sued over. And they're basically going back to the Supreme Court and asking the court to rule that this is okay. So that seems, you know, on its face, uh, just as I explain it here, to be far-fetched or bizarre, you know, just intuitively sounds off. Um, But we're going to talk about why they think that this might be okay and what does this actually have in common with the other thing we're talking about. Right. Okay. Okay, so why don't we start with the uh, Students for Fair Admissions. You heard about this through an NPR report with uh, Nina Totenberg, who, by the way, who has agreed to come on our podcast and and will at a proper time. Yes, and uh, I heard about it because you told me about it, <laughs> and then I looked up the Gray Lady, and and there's an article in the New York Times um, about it. Anti affirmative action group sues West Point over admissions. Right, policy. and just to be clear, the Gray Lady is the New York Times. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I'm not I'm not casting any aspersions here. Uh, I suppose, uh, yeah. I don't I don't know if we can even use that that phrase anymore. Nothing. No uh, sexist uh, comment was meant uh, by that. It's just a term of affection. What's going on here? Why wasn't this covered by the uh, by the affirmative action decisions that we already had? Be- because the majority opinion, per Chief Justice Roberts, signaled that. Um, military academies might actually have a different rationale for taking race into account than the diversity-based rationale that was fundamentally at issue in the University of North Carolina and Harvard cases, which are kind of consolidated. Those institutions, one of which is a public institution, governmental, UNC, one of which is a private institution but that gets government money, Harvard, were doing affirmative action in student admissions on a diversity theory. 
And the court basically knocked that down, um, saying we have real doubts about whether these schools have proper metrics for analyzing diversity, whether these are, this diversity approach really is uh, conducive to the kind of searching, uh, carefully scrutinizing judicial review that we believe is, is appropriate here and that we had actually signaled in, in previous cases. So we're not buying the diversity theory a la Harvard and UNC. That's what the court said. And then it dropped an aside. I can't remember if it was technically in a footnote or in the opinion, where they said, actually, military academies pursue policies um, that are race-based, affirmative action. Um, but because they may be doing so on a theory different than the diversity theory, um, we're not going to necessarily um, um, rule those off the table. We'll leave that for another day. Right. So I can give you some of the facts on this. So... First of all, it's interesting to read the language in this article uh, on this, I, I think, because it says the court specifically excluded the military academies, uh, including West Point, the Naval Academy, and the Air Force Academy, from its decision that affirmative action in college admissions could not be reconciled with the Constitution's equal protection guarantees. So that would suggest that that, when you write it that way, it sounds like, well, if you want a determination about the military academies, you're going to have to sue them because they're not covered by the decision. But that's not, I don't think, entirely accurate. First of all, it was a footnote. Um, it's footnote four. And here's what the Chief Justice wrote. He wrote, the United States, as amicus curiae, contends that race-based admissions programs fur further compelling interests at our nation's military academies. No military academy is a party to these cases, however, and none of the courts below address the propriety of race-based admission systems in that context. This opinion also does not address the issue in light of the potentially distinct interests that military academies may present. Okay, so given that, and let's assume for a moment that there's not another word about the military academies in the entire opinion. Let's just assume that for a moment. Um, would, what would the status of the military academies be following this decision um, with that language? Would they be uh, prevented from having uh, race-based admissions under this decision? Um, would they be, um, because it says they don't decide whether they are a separate category or not. Right. And Andy, even if they did, even if they said Yale's policies are indistinguishable from Harvard's, and so are Cornell's, and so are the University of California at Berkeley, if those other schools, Yale, UC Berkeley, Cornell, in my hypothetical, are not parties to the lawsuit, in some very strict sense, they are not bound by what lawyers call race judicata, a thing adjudicated. So the only people who are strictly bound are the parties themselves and those that lawyers call are in privity with the parties that maybe have some special contractual relationship. Okay, so maybe, for example, even if it was a lawsuit about Harvard College, you might say, well, Harvard Law School is in privity and Harvard Medical School because they're all part of the same larger corporate structure. So 
why does it matter if you are a party or not, if you're covered by race judicata as distinct from a thing called stare decisis, precedent? Well, if you were a party to a lawsuit and you lost the lawsuit and you're not obeying the court order, oh, contempt sanctions can immediately issue against you and there doesn't yet necessarily need to be lots of additional adjudication and all and, and lower courts are, are not going to re-decide anything at all. It has already been decided in a case involving you. You were represented, you had legal counsel, your arguments were heard, and you lost. Now, but other entities that are indistinguishable from you but as long as they're not in, you know, in privity with you, they can try to defy the logic of the court's opinion, force people to sue them. They're most likely to lose and, and quickly unless the lower courts, and this is going to be percolating, of course, up through lower courts. You don't bring a lawsuit in the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, but those lower courts are just going to follow the precedent of students for fair admission if another case is, as lawyers say, on all fours with that. So you're going to lose and lose pronto, and, and the Supreme Court is unlikely to take certiorari because they think they've already decided it. Okay, But strictly speaking, you're going to have to sue someone else if they insist on being ornery about the thing. But their legal counsel is going to tell them, we probably shouldn't do this because we're going to lose. Why do I mention that? Let me, since we're talking about the gray lady, all sorts of misunderstandings that existed when it came to the Texas SB8 law. And we had Ed Whalen on our podcast over a year ago talking about this before Dobbs. I don't know how many news outlets, including the New York Times, were just hopping up and down you know, saying the Supreme Court is, because it went up first through lower courts who, up, who allowed this SB8 law to take effect. It was, I think, a six-week ban on abortion after six weeks. And people are hopping up and down saying this is a clearly unconstitutional law. That's what they say again and again and again. And then when the Supreme Court let the lower court decision stand, at least preliminarily, in a shadow docket case. All these people are hopping up and down, saying this is outrageous. And that included, by the way, the Supreme Court Chief Justice himself was hopping up and down, and I was having none of it. Because I said, strictly speaking, a Supreme Court decision is not the law of the land. The Constitution is a Supreme Court decision, is a Supreme Court decision. And it binds the parties, and it's only starry decisis for everyone else in the world. And if you believe the Supreme Court is not going to stand by that decision if it ultimately gets to the Supreme Court on the merits, because it's, it's about to reverse course, and it's allowed to reverse course. And we've talked about how in many cases in, the, in, over the, in history, the Supreme Court has changed its mind. The Barnett case, uh, reversing course from Gobitis in a case about um, compulsory flag salute in the 1940s, for example, ultimately Dobbs abandoning Roe versus Wade and Casey. And I saw all of that on the shadow doc case. That was like a dress rehearsal. The Supreme Court is telling me preliminarily, you know, their inclination is that, that Roe isn't 
good law anymore. They're going to move away from Roe and from Casey. It's precisely not the case that this was a flagrantly unconstitutional law because for the Texas law to be flagrantly unconstitutional, at least one of two things has to be true. One, you can call it flagrantly unconstitutional if the Constitution really clearly says something. And then you have to show me where in the Constitution it really says X. And if not, if you're only basing something on your, your claim of flagrant unconstitutionality of this Texas law on a case, even a long line of cases like Roe versus Wade and Casey, those are only as good as today's Supreme Court is willing to say they're good. And if today's Supreme Court is no longer willing to stand by those decisions, those decisions are, are not very solid. And that's why Texas did what it did and the lower courts were betting on the fact that the Supreme Court was going to move away from Roe versus Wade. And in the shadow docket, it signaled that it was actually moving in this direction. That's why it didn't enjoin the um, enforcement of this Texas law, even as it was hearing a companion case, Andy, you say not a companion, but a case involving a similar issue out of Missouri, but Texas and Missouri weren't in privity with each other. So it's like Yale and, and, and Harvard in our earlier hypothetical. And I saw when the Supreme Court allowed that Texas decision to take effect, the Texas um, statute, at least preliminarily, they are tipping their hand big time. They're signaling that we're in the process of moving away from Roe versus Wade. And therefore, the Texas law was not flagrantly unconstitutional because flagrantly unconstitutional, to repeat, means either it's in the Constitution or there are five justices who think it's today, not 50 years ago, um, living, um, who think it's flagrantly unconstitutional. You know, I, I get the principle, but, you know, in the case of SB8, first of all, that's the, just in case our audience is unfamiliar with the terminology, that's the, the so-called vigilante law. That's a, a law, although it's not, a, as I was pointed out earlier, the vigilante law is an oxymoron. It, you know, vigilante is someone that operates outside the law. So, but anyway, the Texas law was a five-week law. Oh, five. I said six. So, okay. It was like, yeah, you know, no, but, fetal but, heartbeat. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm not, it's not that I'm correcting you on it. It's that... That's an outlier. So, you know, Dobbs being decided on Glucksburg basis, it would seem that maybe, you know, the SB8... Uh, oh, we're back to the Dobbs deal. Get, oh, if only the, the liberals on the court had at least played to, no, no, but, to keep something in, in hand. They, they didn't make any of those arguments, and, and they're still available. You could still say all of that, Andy, but we wanted them to actually, frankly, concede Missouri and try to find, you know, a defensible fallback. You know, and which is what right. a tactician does. Okay, I can't hold this advanced salient or line, you know, at the peach orchard in Gettysburg. So I have to fall back. What's a defensible line that I can hold? And and we came and we offered one. You know, we had a whole bunch of episodes, and the Dobbs deal said, "Here's what you could say. You could say the Missouri law is okay because." 15 weeks, 16 weeks, that gives you enough time if you're a woman to figure out that you're pregnant and to make appropriate arrangements. And if you don't terminate your pregnancy at 15 weeks, you were given time. And we said, oh, but um, you still should be uh, allowed to travel outside the state and there may be medical emergencies. And, and that could be you know, the basis for a fallback position that united the liberals wing, uh, liberals, um, Justice Jackson, Justice Ka uh, Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, with Roberts, and you could maybe get Kavanaugh. 
Okay, and that's what we had proposed, but but they weren't interested in that kind of coalition. Right, but but I understand, and we we just reviewed that a couple of weeks ago in our episode on on Justice Kavanaugh. I'm a little confused though because you know it seems like they allowed the SBA law to they declined to issue a stay mm-hmm. on it. It hasn't reached the Supreme it Court. It hasn't. Right, but it's it isn't part of that related to the likelihood that it will be upheld. But I mean, this seems like the six week business or five weeks, you know, is, you know, somewhat problematic. I mean, and and I'm surprised in a way, if you, if you think of it that way, given that they were going to use a Glucksburg, uh, may, maybe they didn't have it in their head. But but if they did have it in their head, that was going to be the basis on which they were going to uphold this other law right. or or then why would they allow this law to stand given that it's an outlier. And just remember, any litigant today can defy SB 8, you know, on the grounds that he or she, let's say they're a doctor providing reproductive services, and um, try to get, uh, get that case up to the Supreme Court. Now, if they lose, they're in a bit of trouble because they performed an abortion, they could try today, I believe, to get a, um, to say, I haven't performed an abortion yet, but I'm ready, willing, and able to do so. I want to bring a suit for a declaratory judgment that SB 8 actually goes too far. It violates Dobbs. It violates because Dobbs is based on Glucksburg. And you know who they'd be just like, Andy? They'd be just like the website designer in 303 on the standing right. issue, and I would be for their right to come to court and they wouldn't have to prove that um, all sorts of things. It's an, it's enough for me that Texas is enforcing this law against other people and stands ready, willing, and able and wants to have this fight. And that was good enough for me in Colorado. That was when there was a conservative litigant, the website designer, who wanted to fight with Colorado and Colorado wanted to fight with her. And I thought, that's, that's a legal fight. And here it would be a liberal litigant who, who wants to fight with a conservative state, Texas, which wants the fight. And so that could be litigated today. And the argument, Andy, would be in Dobbs, you only upheld a 15-week law, and that wasn't an outlier. And under the Glucksburg analysis, it passed muster, but six weeks is really extreme. That remains open today, but... The fact that people aren't bringing it may suggest that lawyers think that they would lose that case. Okay, well, back to the um, case, the West Point case here. So I could see, let's say I'm the, you know, I'm at Yale, for example, and you say, well, I'm not actually covered. I'm, I wasn't a party to this case. Uh, students for Fair Admissions with the Harvard and North Carolina, it would be the Harvard case, right. I guess, that would be the one that would, because um, it's a private institution. Mm-hmm. And well, you know, so therefore we can just continue what we're doing. But then you could you could say, well, Mr. General Counsel, you know, uh, you're going to get sued by students for fair admissions and they're going to exactly. win because it's going to be exactly the same exactly. argument. So if you want to keep your job as general counsel, you should probably tell us not to do this to avoid getting sued and losing. Right. Um, okay. But, if, but now if I'm the general counsel at West Point, Maybe I think a little differently, but because do of that I? footnote, because of footnote four, that's the question. Well, it says the it says no military. Let's look at again what it says. No military academy is a party to these cases. Well, that's true, but Yale isn't a party to the case Correct. either, 
you know, so so that. But then they're gonna, about to, me, to say, but there's a different theory that they might have for why they're doing what they're doing, and we're going to talk about what that different theory might be, different than the diversity theory that Harvard and UNC put forth. Right. So the the theory that is being put forth by the United States in a friend of the court brief, saying that it furthers compelling interests at the nation. It doesn't say what they are here, but I'm sure it says so in the brief. National security interests, you know. Right, and which so. is different than diversity. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, maybe it's different than diversity. I mean, it may, you know, it might lose. It, they might both lose. They might both be mm-hmm. unavailing. They might not pass strict scrutiny, but it's a different argument than the diversity argument. And so they're saying that this opinion also does not address the issue in light of the potentially distinct interests that military academies may present. So it seems to me that in this in this uh, footnote, they're not saying there are distinct right. entrants. They're not saying the opinion addresses the issue. They're not so. You know, you if you're West Point. I don't think it is. Would you say the outcome is predetermined? No. What is the court signaling here? Uh, well, I, 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 I don't believe I've ever met Chief Justice Roberts. I've been in the same room. You, you and I were in the same room when he was, you know, uh, forty feet from us uh, when we saw the oral argument in Moore versus Harper. That's about as close as I've ever gotten to John Roberts. Even though he's hired, I think maybe seven or eight of my proteges as his law clerks, including the great Will Bode that our audience has heard from twice recently um, in connection with 14th Amendment Section 3. But I'm an admirer of Chief Justice Roberts. Doesn't mean I agree with him every time. Um, no one agrees with anyone 100% of the time on, on the court or, or off. But he's a great lawyer. He was an appellate lawyer, Parks Lawrence. He was the preeminent Supreme Court advocate of his generation, and not just at, at the Supreme Court, but in also in appellate courts across the country. And he was at a great law firm, Hogan and Hartson, I think, as it was then. It's now Hogan Levels. The position that he had as the, the, the head of appellate litigation there is now occupied by the great Neil Katyal, another one of my friends and, and protégés that has appeared on this podcast as a guest. Uh, uh, we mentioned Will. I think Neil did a couple of episodes, I think, but um, yes. okay. So, and appellate lawyers are especially good at what's called doctrine. And this is a Philip Bobbitt idea that there are different kinds of constitutional arguments. So doctrinal argument, precedent-based argument. And he's very careful. And so the, he's interested in all the things that I just told you about. Starry decisis, versus race judicata, whether you're in privity or not. All the And many a doctrinal lawyer has a certain sensibility. It flows from Brandeis, and I'm going to say something about Brandeis in just a second. But their sensibility can, is often, um, if it's not necessary to decide an issue, then actually it's necessary not to decide an issue. You shouldn't decide issues unless you have to. Now, is that the only way to think about constitutional law? No. John Marshall, whose statue looms larger than life in the Supreme Court building itself, and Andy, you, you and I saw it. I think it's not quite as large as Lincoln at in the Lincoln Memorial, <laughs> but it's, it is, I think, it's not merely to scale. It's larger than life. And mm-hmm. John Marshall decides 
every imaginable thing in Marlboro versus Madison. Because remember, I'll tell the audience, in Marlboro, at the end of the day, John Marshall says, we don't even have jurisdiction. But he says that at the end of the opinion, only after talking about how Thomas Jefferson, who's his second cousin and they don't like each other, has acted illegally in this way, and he's acted illegally in that way, and, and there's this legal issue, and we just have something that we want to get off our chest. And there's this other legal issue that we want to opine about. John Marshall decides every conceivable thing. In part, truthfully, he's running away from a fight he can't win. And so he says there's no jurisdiction, but he wants it to be kind of an orderly retreat and not a rout. And so he unfurls his flags and he, and he blows his trumpet. And as he's retreating, he's saying, oh, we can do all these things. Okay. So John Marshall decided way more than he had to, maybe way more than he should have from a strict point of view, given the court didn't have jurisdiction. Let me contrast that sensibility. Cass Sunstein would call Marshall maybe a maximalist. Um, other justices in that tradition might include someone like Hugo Black, who thinks our job is to interpret the Constitution, and if this case actually before us implicates a broad legal principle, let's articulate the broad legal principle, no law means no law in the First Amendment. So rather than just a little fact-specific ruling about how this plaintiff wins today because of this fact or that fact about her her um, freedom of speech at issue. No, sweeping ruling, government can't do anything like this. No law means no law. Okay, Hugo Black is a maximalist. John Marshall sometimes was a maximalist. Let me distinguish that sensibility from the sensibility of Louis Brandeis, who actually said, we should not reach constitutional questions unless we absolutely have to. We should decide cases on very narrow grounds if possible, maybe, and this is a slightly different point, we should try to have a broad coalition on the court rather than five to four. Cass Sunstein calls sensibilities like this in a book that he wrote called One Case at a Time, minimalist sensibilities. Roberts is, and I'll tell you a little bit more in just a second because I know you want to jump in, Andy, probably more of a minimalist than a maximalist. And I'll tell you just a little bit more about the connection, where Brandeis was coming from, so to speak, and the connection between Roberts and Brandeis. So if you have a justice that's a minimalist, let's say, like you seem to be indicating Chief Justice Roberts might be, um, and he's deciding a case which references back to an earlier case, you know, um, so he's, he's citing a precedent in an earlier case, or he's paying attention to a precedent. And that earlier precedent was decided by a judge, or was, the opinion was written by a justice who is a maximalist and employs all sorts of dictum, uh, dicta and things like that. Would that minimalist judge not credit that dictum or be more likely to, to discount it? Um, or will they say, well, you know, I wouldn't have done that, but he did it, so therefore I have to credit. Oh, I think a minimalist judge might be inclined to try to read precedents more narrowly, might say the precedent binds us, but we need to understand the precedents on the facts of that case. And on the facts of that case, it was rightly decided. They said lots of things, but yes, you got it just right. A minimalist judge might be inclined to say, oh, but all that other stuff is dicta and we're not bound by it. A maximalist judge might say, 
We ruled very broadly in that earlier case, and we should rule broadly today. And if there's also a precedent following justice of a maxless sort, we should rule broadly in the same way that that earlier case ruled broadly. So that's that's kind of a, a form of ignoring precedent in a sense, or maybe not ignoring it, but overturning oh, it. Oh, the, the doctrinalist has many tools in her toolbox for cutting cases down to size without overruling them. And that's what John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, may it please the court, Your Honor, sir, um, that's exactly what he wanted to do in Dobbs. We do not need to overrule Roe versus Wade. It's enough you know, on the facts of this case to actually work within the doctrine and whittle it down. Right, but that's talking about that particular case. Yeah, because um, Roe decided is, things too broadly, you know, with trimesters and all the rest, and that's not Robert's sensibility. But his sensibility is, do we have to overrule it? Is there some way we can say, on his facts, it said a certain thing, and we use the doctrinal framework. Actually, it was modified in a case called Casey. We use the undue burden framework, and we don't need to toss everything overboard. We whittle Casey down, death by a thousand cuts. It's enough for us today to say this Missouri law is okay. To, to, because um, 23 weeks was too sweeping a position. And so this one, I know it's 15 weeks and it, it actually violates a trimester approach, but it actually is okay. He had some reasons for thinking that the Missouri law was okay. So remember, in result, Dobbs is six to three. Six justices says the, say the Missouri law is constitutional. Five, because they basically just throw Roe overboard in maximalist fashion. And Roberts, whose inclinations are very different, you know, says, we don't, why do we need to do that? Why can't we just whittle it down rather than tossing it overboard? That, I think it was Mississippi rather than oh, Missouri. Oh, I keep saying Missouri. You're right. It is Mississippi. Of course, it's Mississippi. My my mistake. But there um, always you, is one view. Says, <laughs> well, you're I, right. I'm just interested in this. I'm interested in this notion of how a doctrinalist looks at dictum because, you know, if you if you look at, for example, Marbury, you know, you just said, okay, there's 15 things that he said, and they don't even have jurisdiction. Right. But it's not like John Roberts is going to ignore all the stuff that's in Marbury. And part of that may be because it gets incorporated in exactly. other cases later. Exactly. Um, so so it, it's quite complex, it actually. When does dictum become, you know, uh, doctrine, You're, you know, or something like that? Beautifully put. That, that could be a great article. When does dictum become doctrine? That'd be a spectacular you know, a book even. Title. Yeah. Um, well, so, um, but let me just tell you a little bit about Brandeis because it's relevant to the current day. Brandeis is a liberal on a conservative court. And um, he's, he's put on the court by Woodrow Wilson, but it's a court dominated by people who are put on the, the court by Republican presidents like William Howard Taft, like Calvin Coolidge, even later Herbert Hoover, before that William McKinley. So he's a liberal on a conservative court. And if the court reaches the merits on all sorts of things, it decides things very broadly and sweepingly, they're going to decide things in ways that Brandeis probably doesn't like so much. So he advocates deciding you know, just what's necessary in the case at hand, no more, ideally deciding things even on non-constitutional grounds if, if possible. So there's some 
you know, uh, tactical judgments, frankly, perhaps in, in, in Brandeis's sensibility. Well, does the court become more liberal and then he becomes more open to more expansive? Uh... No, the person who was like that is my friend Cass Sunstein, whom I mentioned before. At least that's what, you know, people jokingly say about my friend Cass, that, you know, um, when the Warren court was in place, oh, he was, you know, he, he was raw, he was um, rooting for maximalism. He clerked for Thurgood Marshall. But then as the court became more conservative, he argued, you know, more for minimalism. One case of and, the time. And, and he's in a Brandeis tr- tradition of, of a certain sort. But why am I mentioning Brandeis again and again and again, because Brandeis had a famous law clerk. His name was Henry Friendly. And we've had episodes about Henry Friendly. And Henry Friendly had famous law clerks, including Philip Bobbitt, but also including John Roberts. John Roberts clerked for two very significant jurists. William Rehnquist on the Supreme Court, but the year before that, Henry Friendly on the Chief Judge of the Second Circuit. And I believe... And again, just to remind our audience, I've never met John Roberts, but I, I, I pay a lot of attention to him, and I'm trying to think about how he thinks about the world, because he, he does have an important position, and he, and he could be Chief Justice for a very long time to come. He, maybe he's only not even at the midpoint, possibly, of his, his judicial service. But I think he thinks about Brandeis because he thinks about Friendly, who was his mentor, and Brandeis was Friendly's mentor. Okay. Therefore, getting back to this, the case at hand here... So we're saying that, okay, so John Roberts, you know, crafted this very carefully is what you're saying in terms of the footnote. That's the word, crafted and carefully. John Roberts is a judicial craftsman par excellence. So, okay, so given that, then one would therefore pay very close attention to, you know, what he has to say here to say, well... Everything that he did here is deliberate, most likely. Okay, so do you consider this to be an invitation to a lawsuit like the one that we are seeing now? Or do you consider it to be a warning that maybe you shouldn't file such a lawsuit? Or neither? I would say maybe neither. He's not trying to stir up litigation, but he's simply acknowledging that the court is going to have to, in another case, Address and we haven't yet teed them up, and so let's do that very soon, Andy. Um, in another case, hasn't addressed the specific and distinct arguments that the military academies might put forward for why they're doing affirmative action, which isn't quite diversity. And and I want to flesh out a little bit more. It's not just national security. It's at least one other thing that's kind of connected, maybe ultimately to national security. But the military academies, I think, may have a different theory of affirmative action than Harvard and a slightly different theory than Harvard and UNC did. All right. So maybe we should look at some of the arguments that uh, were made before, maybe in the amicus brief and things like that. So I'm going to just relate what the New York Times article had to say about it. Um, we'll just assume it was that these numbers are correct, or at least that they're, they're quoting the amicus briefs correctly. So one thing that they say is that in 2020, of Army officers were members of a racial minority and 12.3% were black, which is about one percentage point less than the black share of the national population, so pretty close. Um, And the military is all volunteer. That's important. There's no draft. Another brief, this is a brief that the Biden administration filed supporting Harvard and North Carolina, 
They said that uh, white service members, now this is not officers, but they said they white service members account for 53% of the active duty military overall and 73% of the officers. And black service members make up 18% of the active force, but 8% of officers. Mm-hmm. Now, you might say, well, what do you mean 8%? You just said 12%. But that's because only one in five officers come from the service academies. Many of them come from, you know, they get promoted or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, what a lot of this comes down to is the fact that we have an all-volunteer military, and the military is at some level, an opportunity for career advancement that um, if you are starting from a lower socioeconomic group, you might want to, you might be more likely to take advantage of it than if you were not. Um, And therefore, um, it might be, you know, more appealing overall to African-American families. And, uh, And so you wind up with a lot of blacks in the military. Does it therefore follow that there should be a lot of black officers, you know, more than might be selected through the, the previous admissions process? And this lawsuit apparently takes some pains in comparing the, the numbers uh, before the Vietnam War and after the Vietnam War, which is when, when the military changed from a draft to an all-volunteer military. So, all right. So, what do you make of all that? Fascinating. I'm going to ultimately try to connect it up to voting. So, there are a couple of different things. You're talking about volunteer army. I want to just focus on the idea of representativeness, representation. One idea is that certain entities are political bodies and they should, as it were, look like America. They should be representative. And you might think that's true of those who vote ideally should look a lot like those who are legally eligible to vote. And if not, we've got a problem. And you might think that the legislature should kind of look like the voters, look like, and the reason I keep saying voters, I could say look like America, but let's imagine that America actually is slightly different proportions than the voters because some groups are much younger than others. So we're really talking about people sort of 18 or older. But but if you think the people who actually who get to vote, should pretty much be representative, cross-sectional of the people who are properly eligible to vote, 18 years old and citizens, and you think that the legislature should also kind of look like that. And by the way, it doesn't in certain regards. We talked about how a huge percentage of Americans are not college educated, but almost no one in the Congress is not college educated. And we've just been reading in the news, by the way, Andy, about one of those, um, Lauren Boebert, actually. So who knows if she's going to be there, you know, in a couple of years, but, but, but I digress, but I, no 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 comment. comment. Okay. But, but, but we digress. So you might think, oh, juries should look like America. It should be cross-section representative. You might think the Supreme Court should look like America, and Joe Biden does, and he does affirmative action of a pretty, he openly does affirmative action of a, a certain sort. Yes, I do say a certain sort all the time, Andy, when he announces that he's especially looking for a black woman to put on the court. I, th- I think he actually doesn't even say, I'm especially looking for it. He says, I'm going to pick a black woman, okay? And... And you might think, well, last week we were we we had Bob Woodward on, and in his book Peril, he actually describes 
the conversation that went on between Joe Biden and uh, Representative uh, Claiborne, where where Biden makes the you know Claiborne asks for it and Biden commits to it. Okay, and he's a person says you're right. And he's do a person it. of history. And now, what I want to say is, if that's true of voters, if that's true of the legislature, if that's true of juries, if that's true even of the bench, the judiciary, here's another institution that arguably should look like America. And that's the military. Now I'm going to read you language that most people think is about something, or at least some people think is about something completely different, but it's actually in part about this idea of political representativeness. It is the Second Amendment to the Constitution. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, today the court says that's about arms bearing, gun toting, even in one's home for self-protection and elsewhere. And I think actually the court is right, um, but mainly because of things that happened after the founding, the 14th Amendment and state constitutions today and custom, all sorts of stuff that we've talked about in previous episodes. At the founding, this was especially about militias, but let me read you the language again. And now listen to two key nouns in this Single sentence, the noun militia and the noun people. Because in my view, that militia is supposed to look like the people, be the people. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, this is almost grammatically a dangling modifier of a certain sort, unless Militia means people, which it did. In fact, in an earlier draft, Andy, of this, the language was a well-regulated militia composed of the body of, comma, composed of the body of the people, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state. And there were just too many positives, too many commas, so they pulled that out. But militia and people are roughly the same thing in the same way, Andy, that voters and people are kind of the same thing. And we, the people, do ordain and establish the Constitution. Who's doing that? The voters. Article 1, Section 2, um, talks about how the people are uh, electing representatives every two years. And also, also I would say, jurors. Jur- ex- you took the words right out of my mouth, um, to uh, paraphrase Meatloaf. Yes, absolutely. Jurors are the people. Okay, there's slight differences here. You know, there's a philosophic concept of family resemblance. So I'm not saying if you're a voter, you must be a juror and you must be a militiaman, but there's a real similarity, uh, similarity here. Maybe, for example, if you're allowed to be a voter, even if you don't speak English, okay, because you can follow things in a, in a foreign language, it might be difficult to be a juror if you don't speak English, if the trial is conducted in English and everyone else is deliberating English. So I'm not saying... Each and every voter must be a juror, and each and every juror correlatively has to be a voter. But there's a strong correlation between these. They're supposed to be representative institutions. So here is an argument for the academy. We want our military to look like America because they're supposed to represent American values. Um, We do not want a kind of military-industrial complex that has its own will, its own vision, a kind of country within a country, that's dangerous. We want the military power to be representative of the civilian power. And if that's true of our fighting force, the enlist, what used to be called the enlisted men, but the enlisted people, men and women, then the officers who are leading them maybe should have a similar demographic composition. Oh, I just brought in women. When women vote, 
in the 19th Amendment, in my view, they become part of the people and therefore they have to become part of the military, you see. And one of the reasons they actually did get the vote is they were helpful in the World War I military effort. In general, in America, people who fight vote. People who vote fight. Unproperty people got the franchise at the founding because they fought for the American Revolution. Black men get the vote after the Civil War, way before educated white women, because Denzel Washington is there with the Massachusetts 54th. I was just earlier today actually at that spot, that precise spot in Boston, uh, right below the, the State House, the bas relief of the Massachusetts 54th at the top of the Boston Commons. In Andy, your and my lifetime, 18 year olds get the vote on the express theory that if you're old enough to fight and maybe die in Vietnam, you're old enough to vote on whether we should be in that war in the first place. Women, to repeat, got the vote in World War I as a war measure. Woodrow Wilson goes to the Senate and says, they are supporting the troops, Rosie the Riveter, kind of avant la lettre, and the home front, and, and they should be allowed to be involved in our public deliberations. So I'm saying there are certain institutions that are supposed to, in effect, be proportional, or at least there's an argument that they should be for political reasons. Juries, maybe the bench, maybe the legislature, voters, and yes, the military. And if that's true of the enlisted force and the fighting force, it needs to be, or at least this is the argument, true for the officer's corps. All this is connected to national security, yes, defending the country, but I've given it a twist, defending the country's values, you know, embodying the country's culture. Because what you do not want is, in effect, a kind of country within a country where the military has a different vision than America. And right now, by the way, here are some genuine danger signals. 70 years ago, 60 years ago, you know, when, when, when you and I are born, people who go to Harvard actually fight for America. When World War II breaks out, this is you know, slightly before we were born, people like Joe Kennedy and John Kennedy, the first thing they do is sign up. And, and there was ROTC everywhere. Okay. Now, and also it worked the other way. After World War II, so during World War II, um, New Haven was one of the places, uh, staging areas for uh, military people. And Yale actually, after the war was over, said, okay, if you were in New Haven then, you can come to Yale. So Yale was actually twice as large in the, in the years after World War II. So you see these classes like 1948W, meaning war. And, 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 uh, and, and George H.W. Bush is a member and, of And we had the great Bob Woodward on, and I think he mentioned... He went from Yale. There was ROTC, I, I believe, and he went from Yale, I think, directly for five years into the Navy, you see. Okay, yes. so that's an earlier world, and, and he's kind of very old school in certain ways. So our great Ivy institutions, you know, the, our intelligentsia and our military. Okay, now, today, very different. The Ivy League produces judges, and almost all the justices on the Supreme Court, for example, except for one, Amy Barrett, went to one of two uh, law schools, or, th or three law schools. Because, see, judges in the military, there's some similarities. They, they serve the country. They wear this special uniform. Who wears special garbs? Well, doctors do. Priests do. Judges do. The robes, the military. You know, most jobs actually don't have you know, a special uniform. Okay, and and the uniform. The idea is they're all the same. It's there's. It's not about the person. They're subordinate. Even some of the titles, solicitor general, is referred to as general, uh, attorney general. In America, 
the judiciary is often seen as an elite institution designed to put country first. There are other societies where that's how the military sees itself. You know, the Egyptian military or uh, uh, Franco saw himself in Spain in the beginning of the, the 20th century. These politicians are feckless. And in some countries, it's the generals who, you know, who, who save the country from the politicians in Pakistan, you know, in Egypt, in Spain and elsewhere. And in America. Well, we heard Bob, we heard Bob Woodward talk about that last yeah. week in terms of the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs is saying, you know, the president is maybe off the rails and we've got to, uh, you know, we have a responsibility. And, and people get very freaked out about that. But in America, yes, um, there's this long tradition of the judges, you see, you know, keeping the politicians in check. Okay. So what I'm saying is, if you think your judiciary is a kind of a political body of a certain sort, there's a concern that if the, the military becomes unrepresentative, that's a real danger. So today, this is the flip side. Our great Ivy League institutions are no longer producing military leaders, uh, or even military followers very much. You know, and, and in the old days when you graduated from college, you were commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Marines or the, the Army or the Navy or, or what have you. Now, the flip side is our military academies have really gone way conservative in their enrollment. They're, they're about 80% Republican or more. This, it's a bit of a danger sign when the schools that produce the judges are way left and the schools that produce the fighters are way right. That wasn't true 70 years ago on either side, on the West Point side or on the Harvard-Yale side. That's interesting when you consider that uh, these, some of these numbers show 27% of the officers you know, were members of a racial minority and that sort of thing. We tend to think of of those people as less likely to be Republican. But uh, so it's interesting what, what you say there. That, um, and I'm going to try to so connect anyway, all of this, Andy, to the other thing that we talked about, which is voting rights cases, where proportionality also actually comes into play in interesting ways. Okay, we're going to take a moment here for our listeners who will claim continuing legal education credit for listening to this podcast. The code for this episode is democracy. The codes are not case sensitive, so it doesn't matter if you capitalize it or not. You'll enter this code when prompted after going to podcast.njsba.com. NJSBA stands for New Jersey State Bar Association. That's podcast.njsba.com. And the code for this episode is democracy. I also want to add a word about reciprocity and accreditation. The New Jersey State Bar Association, even though it's a New Jersey organization, is itself accredited in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania. So if you're a member of the bar in those states and you complete the form on podcast.njsba.com, you'll receive a New Jersey certificate if you want New Jersey credit and a New York certificate for New York credit. If you're in Pennsylvania, they don't issue certificates. Their procedure involves the NJSBA reporting the credit directly to the Pennsylvania CLE authority, which they do. So the upshot is that if you're in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, or New York, completing the web form means you're done. In other states, you go through whatever their own reciprocity procedure is, but to make a long story short, you can earn CLE credit in most states. Outside the three states that I mentioned, just contact your state's CLE board for more information. 
We'll try to put together a table state by state over time and put it on our website. But for now, that's how you get your credit, even if you're not a New Jersey Bar member. Now, I would say, though, that there's that this idea of having the population look like America, or having the officers look like America, is not the only argument that one could put forth for having affirmative action at the service academies. I, I alluded to an argument earlier, which is that if a high percentage of the enlisted men are of a minority, uh, then perhaps there's value to having them led by enlisted, you know, by, you. by officers, and, you know, and, and, and or I did, maybe and, not. Now that would be that would be a very non-colorblind argument. So I wonder how sympathetic the court will be to that yeah. argument. Um, and I and you're right, and that was a really interesting take. And I, the only thing that I have to offer on that is that you're right that if you're born at the bottom of the society, it might very well be that one of your paths forward might be the military. The very first scrap of paper that we have in Alexander Hamilton's hand is a note to Ned Stevens, his good friend. It's possible they were even half-brothers. Um, we won't get into all the details there. It's possible Hamilton was, wasn't really a Hamilton. And he says, like, I'm stuck here being this groveling clerk, you know, and I really want to rise, and, and I want to do it in an honorable way. And it ends like, and this is, he, he's 14 years old. He says, in short, I wish there was a war. Okay, that's actually mm -hmm. how the thing, and, um, and yes, if you're lowborn, this may be your path up. Stendhal writes about Le Rouge and Le Noir. You know, you can move up maybe if you're lowborn in the priesthood. You know, that might be another path, you know, to, 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 it's, uh, or in the military, the red and the black. In America, yes, many a lowborn lad has actually been able, white and black, has been able to sort of move up within the military. And no one more spectacularly than Alexander Hamilton. And I mention him because he's at the heart of the, the, the book that I wrote, The Words That Made Us, which is dedicated, among others, to Ron Chernow, who wrote, writes a great biography of, of Hamilton, and to Lynn Miranda and his spouse, Vanessa Nadal. But Hamilton's story is very much this, I'm stuck at the bottom, but maybe I could really arrive. In the modern era, this would be Colin Powell. Here's another point um, related to the arguments in this case uh, that one would be likely to hear. I don't think there'd be necessarily a big genetic component to this. So, for example, let's say that you are a black man and you are uh, you apply for admission to West Point and you're admitted to to West Point and you start and you're the first person in your family, you know, to do that maybe, and now you're you're an officer in the in the army. Well, is your son likely to go in the army? I don't know. You know, so I think it's it's less it's a little different than uh, and also are you as a result of having been in having having a career in the army is that actually going to change the path of your family? In, in I, I actually think way? yes, there are military families. I, Maybe so. I just, I just met. Maybe so. I, I met a general with, last week mm -hmm. uh, actually at an event in Hillsdale, uh, sponsored by Hillsdale, which is a conservative institution. It was in, in D.C. and I was introduced to a very distinguished general, and he was telling me about his children and all of his kids or and or their spouses 
all military. Very interesting. Yeah, well, sure, there are going to be some military families, yeah. but I think, you know, I think that you're going to run into possibly the notion that, you know, generation after generation, you may very well still have this disparity. Uh, and therefore, this notion that the court thought was very important in the Harvard and UNC case about an end point, um, you know, that, that it has to stop at some point having this race-based preference, um, that may be a, an issue here, that maybe you'll never get there. Um, you'll always have to do this, perhaps. Um, now, that might be okay in this context. The court might say, yeah, you know, in this context, we don't need an end point because we're always going to have military needs and therefore we have to, you know, address this. But but maybe not. So that could be... And remember, you know, there are two different question. ideas, the military need idea and the political um, ideal of representativeness. Mm-hmm. Right. Two, right. You know, they, they are not completely distinct, but they're not the same thing. And and then how does all this feed into this notion of, a, of colorblindness that the court has, has felt is important? I mean, obviously, it's not going to be... I mean, the, the sense of the footnote by the Chief Justice is that we care about colorblindness a lot, but it's not an absolute... Uh, determining factor that nothing else could mitigate. Well, and um, that's why I mentioned KBJ and the process mm-hmm. that led to her becoming Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson because President Biden was not coy about this at all. And if women are half of the voters under the 19th Amendment, you know, we could you know, one day I would say genuinely hope for as an ideal that they would be half of the uh, lawmakers, half of the presidents, and I would say half of the military, half of our juries. If you understand, there are in law four classic things that are called political rights. And political rights here, at least two, and and, and we don't talk about this as, as much today, but it was a very important category for people like Abraham Lincoln. And there are at least two or three ways to think about what political rights were as distinct from civil rights. Today, those two things have got mushed together. So if you talk about voting rights and civil rights, people think you're talking about the same thing. No one in 1860 thought that voting rights and civil rights were the same thing. There's there's a Civil Rights Act of 1866 and Civil Rights Amendment, the 14th Amendment. um, And Section 2 is about voting rights, but the rest of it isn't. And the 15th Amendment's about voting rights, and it's different. So here are the four. Voting, jury service, holding office, which you could also say is being voted for, or voting in a legislature or something, and the military. Now, why do they think that this is a special category? Here, it comes about a couple of ways. One, what rights does Akil have as an out-of-stater when he's visiting Andy in New Jersey? Article 4 talks about the privileges and immunities of citizens, and it basically says that, in effect, when Akil goes to New Jersey, he gets all the privileges that New Jersey gives its own citizens. So if Andy can buy a piece of property in Princeton Township, so can Akil. If Andy can sit for a medical exam, so can Akil, although Akil wouldn't pass. If Andy can own a shop, Akil can open up a shop. If Andy can worship, Akil can worship. If Andy can speak, Akil can speak. If Andy can make all sorts of contracts, Akil can make all sorts of contracts. Akil gets treated as an insider, as a New Jerseyite 
for most purposes. And by the way, if Akil were a foreigner at the founding, he wouldn't have been able to own real property. But for most purposes, a Connecticut person has to be treated as a New Jersey person. But here are four things that Akil doesn't get to do. He doesn't get to vote in a New Jersey election, serve in New Jersey government, New Jersey legislature, or vote in a New Jersey legislature, serve or vote, if you will, on a New Jersey jury, or serve in the New Jersey militia. These four things are understood as political rights that are distinct from civil rights when it comes to interstate privileges and use. They're also, Andy, interestingly... So would that be like the National Guard yeah. now? You wouldn't be able to serve right. in the New Jersey right. National exactly. Guard? Right. But they're also, yeah. Andy, in effect, the things that distinguish, let's say, white women from white men, okay? They're both citizens. They can sue in diversity jurisdiction. They have various privileges of citizenship, but women in 1860 don't get to vote. They don't serve on a jury. They don't uh, serve in the legislature. They can't be voted for. They don't vote in the legislature or vote in the jury, and they don't serve in the military. And by the way, once you get one of these, as I say, you often get the others. When you start serving in the military, you get the vote. My uncle served, he, was in, he came from India, and he was at the UC Berkeley as, a, as an undergraduate studying. World War II breaks out. He enters the U.S. Army. He fights at the Battle of the Bulge under Patton, and that's why he gets to stay in America. And and thank you, Uncle Inler, because then you know the other people come, and my family gets to stay in part under this idea that if you serve America, and and when he did so, he was not yet an American citizen. He was an alien serving in the American Army because the American Army needed people to serve. You know, I think that you say that the distinction is a little bit blurred now between civil and, and political rights. And part of the reason that I would think that would lay behind that would be the notion that if you don't have the right to vote, your civil rights are going to be abridged. And that's part of the reason that people worry about you know things like gerrymandering and things like that. The, the, the language um, of the cases say the right to vote is preservative of all other rights. Voting is in part a right to have other rights. It's the way you protect other rights. The court mm-hmm. very much understands that sensibility. Okay, well, I think this is a good uh, segue to the other case that we wanted to talk about. And you can start to see how they might be related from the point of view of how voting carries us over. But I think they're related in another way also, which is we talked about how this lawsuit involving West Point in part is born of a, of a footnote by uh, John Roberts. I'm not sure that people think that that's a bad thing. In other words, that yes, the military might be different and maybe this should be clarified. Mm-hmm. Now, West Point may not like it. West Point probably does to... like it because otherwise they'd be covered by stare decisis. They'd be no different than Yale and they wouldn't even have a prayer. Mm-hmm. Right, but I'm not sure that the students for uh, fair admissions is suing them because they're trying to help out West Point. I think they want to get rid of affirmative action at West Point. So not everybody feels the same way about it, but okay. Um, But but West Point has a leg to stand on because of that footnote. In the case last year of of Allen versus Milligan, we have this finding where the the court says that you have to have these two districts, like we talked about before, that the voting rights are not being upheld of of the uh, minority 
citizens of Alabama. So there's, you know, I'm not sure exactly what form it took, but you talked about how, well, if you don't go along with what the court says, you can be, have a contempt citation or something like that. Well, Alabama's not going along with it. And not only, I don't know if there is a contempt citation, but if there is, they don't seem to mind too much because what they've, they've gone ahead and done is passed another, you know, bill just like that. And why did they do this? Well, the, you know, I read an article in Slate, which made some reference to this and was critical of Justice Kavanaugh, who was the uh, kind of the swing vote in the Allen versus Milligan case. It was a 5-4 case, and he was the arguably the most conservative justice in the five. He writes a concurrence in that opinion. He, he goes along with most of the opinion. Um, but then he writes this concurrence. He goes along with, yes, virtually everything in the opinion. You're right. Yes. So here's what it, here's how the decision, the opinion starts. It says, Chief Justice Roberts delivered the opinion of the court except as to Part 3B1. And then there's an asterisk that says, Justice Kavanaugh joins all but Part 3B1. Correct. I guess that means there's five votes only for the parts that don't include 3B1 Correct. because Justice Kavanaugh it, 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 doesn't. That, that, that 3B1 is not an opinion of the court. It's a plurality opinion. So it's a 5-4 it's, it's opinion. Uh, Justice uh, Kavanaugh doesn't join one section of the opinion, section 3B1. So, uh, so the opinion of the court is actually the opinion that Chief Justice reads except 3B1. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay, fine. But meanwhile, Justice Kavanaugh writes a concurrence, and at one point in the towards the end of his concurrence, which is only four pages, he says, Alabama asserts that Section 2 of the, that's of the Voting Rights Act, as construed by Jingles, which is a precedent, to require race-based redistricting in certain circumstances, exceeds Congress's remedial or preventive authority under the 14th and 15th Amendments. As the court explains, the constitutional argument presented by Alabama is not persuasive in light of the court's precedents. Then he cites uh, a number of precedents. Justice Thomas notes, however, that even if Congress in 1982 could constitutionally authorize race-based redistricting under Section 2 for some period of time, the authority to conduct race-based redistricting cannot extend indefinitely into the future. But Alabama did not raise that temporal argument in this court, and I therefore would not consider it at this time. Okay, sound familiar? Yeah. I mean, that... Like John Roberts, we don't need to decide this this issue. It might be a different issue, and, and let's minimalistically sidestep this. I will say, though, that he's, this is a, a bit of a nod to Justice Thomas. He says, you know, Justice Thomas notes this. Mm-hmm. He's a very um, collegial so, person, is Brett Kavanaugh. And he's voting in the main against Justice Thomas. And this is a nice tip of the hat to say, actually, you raise this issue. I'm, we, it's, it's not presented by the parties, and so we don't need to decide it. And we really shouldn't decide it, but I haven't necessarily ruled that out in an appropriate case, I'm willing to hear that question. So, you know, the difference here, of course, is that here, Alabama is a party to the case, and now they're just, and now they're a party to the next case. <laughs> you know, so in, in a way, it's the same case. It um, is. Not, not 100% because they passed another redistricting plan, although it was very similar. 
But, um, but what they are supposed to follow is what the court has said, and there's a little complexity because you could just say, well, read Chief Justice Roberts' opinion. That's the opinion of the court. But without Brett Kavanaugh, there are not five votes for anything. And he writes what in the business is called kind of a limiting concurrence. It, it says yes, but it has a little bit of a but in it. And, and if he, you're right, just when you add up the votes, if, if his is a little bit more narrow, a little bit more, as it were, conservative, he is the pivot point. Now, we've seen this before, Andy. And then we connect it to, to what we talked about on affirmative action and proportionality. But for this purpose, just before we get to that, we've seen this before. Um, Justice Kennedy would often do this. He would join an opinion and make, and he, he would be the fifth vote, and it would be 5-4, fine. But then he would write separately and in his separate opinion, often there would be some additional sort of narrowing points that he might offer. And as a practical matter, you know, his was really the, the, the pivotal decision, not the opinion of the court. Because without him, you didn't have five. And, and if he had a, even a more narrow understanding than, than the others, that's where the center of gravity of the court was under Kennedy, which is why we called it the Kennedy Court. And in, in this case, that's Kavanaugh. He's the, he's the pivot. There's a case called Mark. There are all sorts of technical issues that I'm not going to go into in great detail, but, but his is the narrowest opinion of, in effect, the majority jurists on the court. Again, there's, these cases feel different, right? In other words, the affirmative action case, you know, it says, okay, no affirmative action uh, in basically regular colleges, you know, public and private. But maybe it would be different for the military academies. We're not deciding that now. And then now suddenly the military academies, well, okay, you know, it was left open. Right. So now we're going to have an answer. Right. Okay. Th this one feels different. This one says, Alabama, you have an, you know, a, a, uh, an illegal, uh, you know, uh, you're violating this statute and you, you need to, you know, do this. And then instead of doing it, they do the same thing they did before, which they were told they shouldn't do, and now they come back because we're gonna, presumably they're going to make this argument that they didn't make last mm -hmm. time. Um, so it doesn't feel the same. Mm. But I might say it's actually uh, here's why it might not feel the same, especially to folks at Slate, because the ideological shoe is on the other foot. Here's a different way of describing it: um, the affirmative action cases, no to affirmative action generally. Oh, but maybe for West Point. Here, in effect, the court is saying yes to affirmative action. We want to actually have proportional representation of blacks in Alabama. Oh, but maybe there's a wrinkle and, and Alabama can come back and, and argue that wrinkle. Now, this is, these are both cases, in effect, about proportionality, about quotas of a certain sort, you see. And why did I say the military might be different? Because it's about political representation. And that's why voting might be different, too. We don't think that of education. We don't think every educational department has to be perfectly proportionate, and, and not just on racial grounds, but on 
uh, gender grounds. We don't think that every fair English department has to have as many women as men. Maybe it should have more women. Maybe women are more interested in, in literature, and maybe men are more interested in military studies. It's possible, okay? And, and it might not be because of discrimination. It might be because of history and culture and choices and all sorts of things. But we don't believe that every department in a university, even every student body, has to be perfectly proportionate. Otherwise, there's something wrong. We don't quite believe that, and in part because... Well, I think there are, there are better examples. Like you could say, well, maybe more women are interested in women's yes, studies. Yes, that is a good... <laughs> for example. That, that's a great example, okay? <laughs> um, so, and we also might think that there are certain kind of qualifications. You can't be an ophthalmologist unless you actually went to med school. And you can't go to med school unless you actually, you know, have some minimal uh, ability in, in biology, for example. And it might be that that's not proportionately distributed for whatever reason in society. We don't think that of voters. Everyone can vote. We don't think that of jurors. Basically, if you're a voter, you can be a juror. And maybe in the military, like we're all presumptively equal and, and the military should look like America and so should our jurors and so should, you might think, our legislature and, and our, our voting base. And so there's a stronger argument for proportionality. Um, I want to give a shout out to an important article that says we, our law, in fact, is much more focused on effects um, than just pure intent in the voting domain. It's much closer to a kind of a, a quota um, an analysis. It's an article by um, a Professor Amar, but not Akhil Amar, Professor Vic Amar, who's been on the podcast uh, before, and his a colleague, Alan Brownstein. It's an article in the Stanford Law Review, it's called The Hybrid Nature of Political Rights. That's a very abstract uh, title. Let me just read you the one paragraph description of this article, and, and you'll see the relevance of now voting rights to some of the things we've been talking about before in the military. In recent redistricting and juror exclusion cases, the Supreme Court has expressed hostility to the idea that government may consider racial or gender group membership in making decisions that determine the composition of representative institutions. Instead, the court has insisted that government must think of voters and jurors solely as individual actors who cannot be recognized as having similar interests, experiences, or perspectives as other persons who share their race or sex. Whatever merit there may be in adopting this exclusively individualistic approach in the area of civil rights and privileges, Professors Vic Amar and Brownstein argue that it's an inadequate basis for understanding the Constitution's equality requirements when political rights are at issue. Instead of focusing exclusively on the individual, our constitutional tradition acknowledges a dual dimension to political rights, consisting of both an individualistic dignitary component and a group-based instrumental component. This tradition developed out of a political and legal struggle, out of the political and legal struggles to extend the franchise to black men and to women through the 15th and 19th Amendments and underlies over a hundred years of case law interpreting the nature of political equality for constitutional purposes. 
political rights in America have always reflected an uneasy tension between respect for the individual and a concern for the ability of groups to influence government. When the modern court ignores the group and instrumental dimensions of political rights in our history, it avoids rather than resolves the hard questions and grounds constitutional doctrine in this area on an unstable foundation. Now that's still a little abstract, but what I think they're basically saying, Andy, here is proportionality and quota analysis may make a lot more sense when it comes to certain political institutions that are supposed to look like America and be representative. Here's another thing they're saying. When it comes to voting, it can't be purely individualistic because as a practical matter, whether you, you know, how much your vote counts depends upon the votes of people around you. You know, um, if you're in one district, your, your vote is submerged and sorry, Charlie, you're going to lose every time. If you're in another district where people around you are like-minded, you're going to be able to combine your vote with their votes and pick a winner. You see, and it matters a lot whether you, you know, from your point of view, whether, and from the system's point of view, whether your vote goes to someone who wins or goes to someone who loses. One final point, because Justice Thomas said, well, gee, maybe there was a time when we needed to focus on bottom line numbers and proportionality and Congress could focus on effects above and beyond intent. And maybe that was true 40 years ago when Congress actually passed a renewal of the Voting Rights Act, but enough time has lapsed. We shouldn't do that anymore. And Justice Kavanaugh says that argument wasn't raised by the parties. You know, maybe in another case, I'll consider it. And that's the issue maybe that Alabama now wants to litigate. One strong counter argument to Justice Thomas might be the following. These proportional rules um, or rules that kind of push kind of in the direction of the idea that, well, if blacks are 30% of the population, they should maybe get 30% of the seats. That's two out of seven rather than one out of seven. These rules apply. And, and strictly speaking, actually, they don't require proportionality. They just kind of pushing a little bit in an effects direction, but they only apply in situations where there is racially polarized voting, where blacks tend to vote with each other and for black candidates, and whites tend to vote with each other and for white candidates. And if you don't have racially polarized voting, actually, then this provision of the statute, the Voting Rights Act, doesn't really kick in in a strong way. And if that's true, Justice Thomas, the actual rule itself has a kind of sunset built into it, into the doctrinal test, because it applies only where we continue to see racially polarized voting. And if one day we get beyond all of that, the kumbaya moment where we all actually you know, forget about race and just hold hands together, actually the law itself will sunset because of this internal doctrinal prong that it has in it, which is that it really is about situations where there's racially polarized voting. Okay, well, I have to say I, I'm really impressed with this episode because, you know, all these things came together, you know, that didn't necessarily seem like they had that much to do with each other and and uh, and really, really quite fascinating. So thank you for, for that, Akio. I mean, this is the kind of thing, you know, it's funny, I, I'm a big Apple computer fan, right? And, uh, and Tim Cook, who is not the most uh, scintillating presenter, uh, of all time, he's the CEO of Apple, and uh, but I watch their keynotes, and he always says things like, 
only Apple could do this, right? And what he means is that, you know, Apple controls the hardware and the software. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they this kind of integration by having, you know, all of, by, you know, knowing all the different things that the machine does uh, and having control over it allows you to, to integrate it in, in a very interesting ways. And I think, you know, Akil, this is one of the great things about, and maybe, you know, I'll embarrass you, but this is one of the great things about listening to you is that you have so many different areas of expertise within constitutional law that these things come together that you might not, that, you know, no one else would really see that they come together. So good for you and good for us for having the opportunity to, to see that. Thanks and uh, see you next week. Okay.